ready, hasn't it? So excited about this, and it, it's uh, great to be able to share in the celebration of the resurrection uh, with you. Uh, so Luke 24 is where Dwayne had us uh, turn, and I'm, I'm going to read uh, these, right off, uh, these verses right off the top. And we've been singing about the resurrection. Now let's uh, fill in some of the details with uh, the account of the resurrection uh, from the Gospel of Luke. This is Luke 24, verses 1 to 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn... I'll just pause right there and say that the people that came to the 7 a.m. service um, obeyed this most closely. <laughs> the people who came to the 9 o'clock service obeyed this less. And then there's the people who came to 11 who are hardly obeying this at all. Okay. I should probably start again. But on, thanks for being here, though. I'm really glad you're here. Just in case I wasn't clear. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. You've heard me quote uh, before a man uh, named uh, Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was an atheist and an investigative reporter for a Chicago newspaper. And he set out to disprove Christianity. And as he began to investigate it, here's what he realized. And this is a quote from him. The resurrection was the linchpin of the Christian faith. The resurrection was the linchpin of the Christian faith. Pull out the linchpin and everything else about Christianity comes tumbling down. The house of cards falls. For Lee Strobel, this was a really personal thing because to his shock and really horror, his wife had given her life to Jesus Christ. Lee Strobel wanted to disprove, debunk Christianity so that he could show his wife that her faith was in vain and persuade her to change her mind. The Apostle Paul also realized that if you're going to disprove Christianity, the way to do it is by disproving the resurrection. Evidently, there were some people in the Corinthian church mere decades after the resurrection of Christ who were struggling with the whole idea. Is there really, was there really a a resurrection? And so Paul wrote this to, to the Corinthians in his first letter. If Christ has not been raised, if there is no resurrection... 
then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's ridiculous that you came to church today. Even it's ridiculous that you even came to the 11 o'clock service. I mean, even that is ridiculous. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. If we're preaching a resurrection that never happened, then we're saying something God never said. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you're still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I mean, some of us might say, you know, but at least we lived a good life and we did this and we believed in some things or they weren't proven true, but at least we give a, lived a good life. And Paul's saying, that's ridiculous. You could have slept in today. You, you could have spent the whole day to yourself. You didn't have to, well, you guys did sleep in today, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not mock you any longer for being the 11 o'clock service. That is a promise. <clears throat> but why are we even here? Why are we bothering, Paul is saying? Because like Lee Strobel, he's saying the linchpin of all of this is the resurrection. We have to believe that Christ was raised from the dead. And at the very center of what we believe, of everything that we are, of our entire faith, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why we've come here. And that's why we've pulled out all the stops to celebrate in the way that we've celebrated And according to Luke 24, 1 to 12, this is exactly what happened. Christ was raised from the dead. And when the evidence points to the impossible, we're talking about the resurrection, when the evidence points to the impossible, the implications will hit us. Faith will be birthed in us. The truth will save us. And our lives will never be the same. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now what I want to do is spend some time unpacking that statement that I just made. And we'll break it down with the first phrase. When the evidence points to the impossible. Let's talk about the impossible. It is impossible to raise someone from the dead. That is impossible. Even with our current medical technology, our knowledge, it remains impossible. Now I'm going to talk about some things related to medicine right here. My degrees are not at all in that area of study, so I consulted with a couple of doctors in our church to make sure I got the wording right. Everybody should say amen to that. You don't want to get any medical advice from me. A person may, for a few moments, be clinically dead and be revived. You can be clinically dead for a few moments and be revived. You cannot be clinically dead for a few hours and be revived. You cannot be clinically dead for a couple of days or a few days and be revived. That is impossible. Clinical death occurs. Here's the wording that was approved by the doctors. Clinical death occurs when the heart and respiration stop. That can be reversed if medication and treatment is given early enough, immediately. That's clinical death. Now listen, biological death occurs about four to six minutes after clinical death due to a lack of blood and oxygen to the brain causing irreversible brain damage. Thus, the final determination of death is not clinical death, but brain activity or brain death 
If a person is brain dead, then they're truly dead. Again, that happens just minutes, really, after clinical death. Now, think about Jesus again. Go back to Friday. He dies at 3 in the afternoon. 3 p.m. he dies. He's moved from the cross to a tomb. And um, for all of Friday, he is dead. The rest of Friday from 3 p.m. till midnight. And then all of Saturday, he is dead. And then at some point after midnight, Sunday morning, sometime after midnight and before the dawn, but presumably for some hours yet of Sunday, he is dead before he's resurrected. Jesus, by any definition, is clinically dead, and he's biologically dead. And that makes sense, given the condition that he would have been in when he was placed in the tomb. Again, on Friday, on Good Friday, as I preached through a, a part of chapter 23, we looked at the crucifixion and everything that happened to him. To understand again, we're, we're building on this idea that, of the impossibility of him being resurrected. But he was beaten so savagely, this was all part of it, but he would have been scourged with whips. The Romans were very good at this. The whips were designed in such a way to tear at the flesh. Again, we talked about a little bit on Friday, and, and the muscles would have been torn open, not just the skin. The muscles would have been torn open. You would have seen, eventually, down to the bone, you would see bone, you would see ligaments, you would see ten- tendons. In some cases, the whips would wrap around the midsection of the person being flogged, and it would tear open their body in such a way that their internal organs would even be visible. Jesus was in uh, such a state of blood loss and and weakness, of course, that he couldn't even carry the crossbeam of the cross. We learn from the scriptures that a man named Simon was pressed into service to carry it to the place of execution. Once they got there, they laid Jesus on the crossbeam. They nailed his hands there, dislocating his shoulders. They hoisted it up and put it on the vertical beam. Then they nailed his feet into the cross. He would spend the next six hours just trying to breathe, pressing against his feet the pain and agony of that excruciating pain just to be able to inhale and exhale. Six hours after being nailed to the cross, he died. The testimony of the Gospels, in fact, is clear. Jesus had already died. It was actually surprising to some that he had died so soon. One of the soldiers took a spear, John 19 tells us this, took a spear and thrust it into his side. When the soldier did that, there was a a flow of both blood and water that came out from the wound. The doctors know what that is. He had suffered such an amount of blood loss, his heart was in an irregular heartbeat. This caused fluid to build up in the sac around the heart, so that when the spear was thrust in, that fluid, along with blood, flowed out. Jesus was dead. There can be no doubt about that. And, and in fact, no one disputed that. The Jewish leaders didn't dispute that he was dead. Nor did the Romans dispute it. And in fact, when you think about the Romans who actually did the act of crucifying him, these were men, soldiers in the Roman army, the legions, who, who were experts at killing. This was what they did. 
Whatever it is that you do, I hope you become an expert at the thing that you do. I hope you're very good at it. I hope you train for it. I hope you're excellent at it. I hope you're trying to be better at whatever it is you do. And Roman soldiers were very much in that line of thinking. They wanted to be very, very good at killing people. And a Roman soldier would never allow a crucified criminal to come down off that cross alive. They would guarantee his death. In fact, their job was on the line if a crucified man survived. And by their job was on the line, I mean, of course, that their life would be on the line. They ensured that Jesus was dead. And I've said all of this to set up the impossibility of Jesus rising and being alive after all of this. Because he was dead. He was placed in the tomb, dead. Now verse 1 here. Early on Sunday morning, these women come. If you look down to verse 10, you can add it up and it, it seems there are at least five, six, maybe even seven women who are in this group. It could even be, be more. And they've arrived to anoint the body. Verse 2, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. That may have solved a problem for them because I'm not sure they came with a plan to actually roll the stone away. Maybe they were thinking because they knew that soldiers had been appointed to guard the tomb, maybe they thought the soldiers would do it for them. Verse 3, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Could the impossible have happened. Imagine the scene with these women just trying to figure out what exactly has happened here. They're carrying their spices and, and, and the oils and the ointments and, and the stone is rolled away. That's unusual. They look in, the body is gone and that's unusual. Where's the body? They're trying to figure out what's happening and verse 4, while they were perplexed, confused about this, and trying to figure it out. Behold, two men, not men, what are they? You know how they're angels? Dressed like angels, it says right here. Stood by them in dazzling apparel, apparently an angel uniform of some kind. Okay, how do you know an angel? They're going to be dressed like an angel. Just makes sense right here in the scriptures. So now the evidence is starting to mount for these women. The stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. And there are a couple of angels right here. Something must have happened. Something impossible. And there's so much more to come in terms of evidence. But listen. Jesus had said this back just a few chapters before, chapter 18, long before the cross. Jesus said this in verse 27 of, of chapter 18. What is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man, reviving someone, bringing someone back to life after biological death, after being in the grave that long, that's impossible for a man. But what is impossible for a man is possible with God. Now, when Jesus said this, by the way, it was in a conversation with a young man who had come to him. He was a rich young man, in fact, we're told. And he came with the question, what do I have to do to get eternal life? 
So Jesus had this conversation with him about this. And at the end of the conversation, it became very clear that no one is able to save themselves. In other words, we're talking about impossibilities. It's impossible for anyone to save themselves. It's impossible for anyone to reconcile themselves to God. It's impossible for any human being to make up for all the sins that they've committed. You can't do that. I can't do that. No human being can do that. This rich man couldn't do it. A poor man couldn't do it. The well-positioned person can't do it. The lowest person in society can't do it. The healthy and the infirm cannot do it. The morally upright, the morally bankrupt cannot do it. It's impossible. The religious and the irreligious cannot reconcile themselves to God. It's impossible. But Jesus says, what is impossible with man, your ability to save yourself, what is impossible for man is possible for God. Only God can save. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can reverse and erase the curse of death that hangs over all of us. Now that's within the context of Luke 18. But this statement is a general principle that's true in every situation. God can do the impossible. Do you believe that? God can do the impossible. And when you come to that realization, if you're willing to admit that God can do the impossible, he can do things I can't do, then the implications hit. That's what we see next. I like double negatives. How many people like double negatives? You like double negatives? Kind of make you think a little bit, right? It's not nothing. It's not nothing if Jesus was raised from the dead. You're saying, I'm still trying to figure out that double negative. What does that mean? It's not nothing that Jesus was raised from the dead. If God did that, if he raised his son from the dead, then that's something. That has implications. I'm going to be pressed to make a decision about that. There has to be some kind of response from me. If the resurrection is legit, that has implications. Now, verse 5. The women were frightened. They've just seen these two angels in, in dazzling clothes, and they were frightened, and they bowed their faces to the ground. The men, these angels, said to them, this is a bit cheeky, actually. Why do you seek the living among the dead? You know, is this kind of like angels bored? They're going to go out and mess with some humans. How could you be so stupid? Why are you looking for a, a live person among dead people? And it's just angels being jerks. I don't know. <laughs> Verse 6. He's not here, but has risen. Now, of all the things, all the words that have ever been spoken in all of planet Earth in the entirety of our history all the great historical speeches and quotes that we could isolate, if we were to build a top 10 list of the most awesome things that were ever said, don't you think this would be on the list? He's not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you? Do you remember that? While he was still in Galilee, verse 7, 
that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Do you remember him telling you that? In fact, Jesus had told his disciples, he had told people that multiple times. Back in Luke 18, 33, he said to them, speaking about himself, but in the third person, he said this, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. That sounds really clear. Like they should have got it, like they should have remembered it. And now the angels are asking him, do you remember him saying that? I mean, if that's true, if that, if that, if that really happened, all the despairing, all the sorrow, all the brokenness that has happened since the arrest and since his beating and since his crucifixion, all of the thoughts that all of this was a waste of time and that you've lost everything, all of that is now out the door. It's now game on. And, and the, kingdom, the kingdom of God is back on. You thought it was lost when Jesus was crucified. And I'm telling you, everything he preached is back in play. And that has some implications attached to it. Timothy Keller, pastor in New York City, said this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. It's not like I'm attracted to this. I think this is awesome. I think this teaching is really interesting. It's not about that at all. Are you convinced that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. It's not even really so much about where you're at right now. It's whether or not the resurrection is true. That's what we respond to. Now listen, it's, it's Easter Sunday, so I get it. We had to add another service to make sure we could accommodate everybody because everybody who's part of the Harvest family they're all going to show up on this Sunday, and so we need to make extra room. And then they invite a lot of guests, and some of you are friends, and some of you are strangers that might have been invited here, and some of you are family members. And I don't know all the reasons why you might have ended up in this room here today. I want to say that I'm super glad that you're here. I'm glad that you've come. Many of you who have come here maybe do not yet have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That that's not a thing really for you at all. And as you come here today and consider all of this, if you are absolutely convinced that Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, that the resurrection is not a thing, then let me just say thank you for coming. I hope you enjoyed your time with us. I want you to walk out with that straight, same confidence. Just walk out the door and I, and I want you to live your life. I want you to enjoy your life and I don't want you to think another thing of the Bible. I don't want you to think another thing of God or of Jesus or of the church. If you are convinced that there is no resurrection, walk out confident in that. But if Jesus was raised from the dead, if you have any inkling inside of you that that might be true, that I'm pleading with you to think through the implications of that being true. 
Because then I think you're not going to be able to walk out the door quite so confidently. I want you to consider Christ. And it's quite all right if you come to him the same way these women are coming to him. Perplexed and a little frightened. Perplexed, not quite having figured it all out, that it's still pretty mysterious. I'm still a little confused about it. That's okay. Bring your questions. Bring your doubts. Bring your fears. I'm afraid of what this is going to mean for me. That's a justifiable fear. Bring all of it. It's exactly where the women started. All right, let's keep going here. When the evidence points to the impossible, the implications hit, and faith begins. In the Good Friday message, again, we were in chapter 23. We talked about having just the smallest amount of faith because we saw these little, on that very, very dark day, we saw these little glimmers of light, little glimpses of of truth and faith kind of coming through. And just having the smallest amount of faith is enough for God. It's not about us bringing a lot of faith to the table. It's not about us having a particularly strong faith. Just a little bit is going to be enough. And we saw that in several characters that were there at the cross. The Roman centurion who watched the whole thing go down and then said, surely this man was an innocent man. He saw something in Jesus that caught his eye, that caught his spirit, in fact. Then there were the crowds, some of whom no doubt had called for his crucifixion. And now they're walking away from from his crucifixion, beating their breasts and, and, and mourning him in a sign of mourning and grief because they realize, I think, in this moment that they had been wrong. That there was something about Jesus. And then... At a distance, the Bible tells us there were these acquaintances of Jesus and, and these women, no doubt some of those women are the same ones that went to the tomb and, and they're standing at a distance. They couldn't pull themselves away. They, they had to stay there for Jesus because they knew there was something different about him. This is faith beginning. And as the angels were talking, the women, verse 8, remembered his words. Do you remember how he told you? And they went, hey, He told us. Do you remember how he told us? They remembered his words. And that's their faith just beginning to grow in this moment. And the proof that they believed in this moment, that their faith had really started to take root, was that they returned from the tomb. Notice what they did. They returned from the tomb, and they told all of these things to the eleven and to all the rest. They believed it, and they began to proclaim it. This is actually, they're the first evangelists going out with the gospel to proclaim it to the disciples themselves and to say, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. They have faith. They're on mission. They believe it. Now, this matter of faith is important for us to understand what's going on here. The preacher said in in Hebrews 11, Hebrews is a sermon manuscript. The preacher said this, Hebrews 11.1, about faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Now, you lay that right on top of this story of the resurrection and these women, and you see that being played out Big time. Faith is a substance of things hoped. We hoped for this. We're hoping for the kingdom of God. This is the way it's going to take place. 
It's the evidence of things not seen. They weren't actually there for the actual resurrection. There are no actual witnesses of the actual resurrection. They're seeing the evidence of something they can't see. The very same way any of us would would have to believe. And we've often used this definition of faith. A faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel, knowing God promises a good result. Again, you, you, you lay the women's experience on top of that template and they believe the word of God. They believe the word of God as Jesus had preached it to them and they now remembered because the angels had reminded them of it. They're now acting upon it. In other words, they're taking that information. Wow, we heard that. Now we see the empty tomb. Now we're going to act upon it and we're going to go to the disciples and tell them. And they're going to do it no matter how they feel. They're still perplexed. Maybe they're still a little frightened about it. But they're going to push through the circumstances to go and fulfill the mission. This is faith. Because they know God's promising a good result. The kingdom of God is going to come to them. Now listen, this this lays as a template over our entire lives. We start to think about what does it take to live by faith, to have this? It's Believing the word of God. It's believing that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. You believe the word of God and then you act upon that. That has implications for all of our lives. We're all making decisions every single day. We're walking down certain paths. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fact that he is alive, impacts every decision, every step I take. The way I live my life is impacted by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's his resurrection power applied in my life and lived out. And again, I do that despite any circumstances that are happening around me. And I do it firmly holding on to the promises that God has made to me about eternal life and an abundant life here. So do I believe the word about the resurrection? And am I acting upon it? That's what every person in this room really needs to ask themselves. Do I believe the word about the resurrection and am I acting upon it? What needs to change? What do I need to repent of, turn from? What do I need to start doing in my life to live out the resurrection? All right, see what's happening here. We've come to realize now that the truth is saving us. The truth about Jesus' resurrection is saving us. And, and, and most don't come to this easily. So let's, let's commend the women who went to... The, I'm serious. Let's commend the women who went to the tomb. Let's commend the women. Men, commend the women. Okay? Okay? We're going to commend these women who went to the tomb and we're going to commend them for believing and not doubting. And I can imagine that once they heard this and it said they left the tomb and they went back to the disciples, I can imagine they went back and they were very excited. Again, there's five, six, seven, maybe more women. I'm I'm imagining they're busting into the room where these disciples are and they're all talking at the same time. Did I say that? They're talking over one another and they're finishing each other's sentences. Oh yeah, and don't forget about this thing. And then we saw a couple of angels. You should have seen what they were wearing. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're excited. They're sharing all of this with the disciples. And then, 
all the air was sucked out of the room by the men. Boo to the men. Boo the men. Well, even hissing, nice. The men. Verse 11, but these words seemed to them an, an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Isn't that just like a man? Wives, isn't that just like a man? Yeah. Now, in that culture, first century, women were not to be believed. They, they didn't have enough legal standing in the culture of the day to even be a witness in court. Their testimony was not counted as anything, so they would not be called as witnesses. So we understand that women didn't have the same standing in culture and society at that time as uh, they do today. And so you can understand maybe why these men didn't want to believe them. It's such a God thing, in fact, to have women be the first ones to witness the resurrection. It's such a God thing to do that. Because no one in that day, I mean, if, if someone in that day were trying to invent a religion and make up a story and write about it and then have people believe it, you would never have women witnessing the resurrection because people would just go, this is such a fairy tale. You wouldn't convince your reader that it was true by having, wit having it witnessed by women. And yet, this is the way God did it. You know, it's very similar to the birth narrative. Remember this. Jesus is, is being born in, in Bethlehem. And the first announcement came to a bunch of shepherds who on the socioeconomic ladder are the bottom rung. The lowest of the low. People didn't hang out with shepherds. Why announce it to shepherds? It's a bit offensive because none of the religious leaders got an announcement about it. Nobody who is of any standing in Israel heard about it. Oh, God did announce it to another group of people, some pagan astrologers in Babylon. And the reality is that God's going to announce things the way that God wants to announce things. The reality is that, that God is in charge of the narrative and God's always going to do things his own way. Do you believe that? God is writing the narrative of history and he's going to do things his own way. In fact, you could apply that to your own life individually. You could say God's writing the narrative of my life and he's going to do things his way. So much easier if we surrender to that. So the truth has been delivered. The women have responded favorably. The men, not so much. Except for, except for, who's the bold, brash disciple who you can count on at a time like this? Peter, verse 12. But Peter, way to come through, Peter. I mean, Peter, this is, this is what we've been waiting for because he did that whole denial thing in three times and he went out weeping. He was so broken at what he had done in denying Jesus. But this was also Peter who stepped out of the boat and walked on water. This is also Peter who was there to witness the transfiguration of Christ. This is Peter who, when Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ. So Peter steps up. I love it. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Though I do not endorse running at all for any reason whatsoever, running to the empty tomb to see the resurrected Christ might be a good reason to run. 
But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. I mean, this, this, is, this is the truth coming to bear in Peter's life right here. He's starting to become convinced of this. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, no body. And he went home marveling. Listen, we'll come back to the word marveling in a second. Marveling at what had happened. There's no doubt there. It had happened. And he's marveling about it. He's, he's, he's wondering. He's in amazement over it. This isn't wondering as in, hmm, I wonder if this is true. This isn't, this isn't doubt at all. This isn't unbelieving. He's believing it. He has the sense of marveling in, in, in the sense that his world has just been rocked by the truth and he's trying to put it all together in his own mind. Now there's so much more to come in the appearances of Jesus and we'll see that in the next couple of messages in, in the balance of chapter 24 when Jesus appears to them on the Emmaus Road and there's just this spine-tingling story and, and then he appears to them again and he charges them with the mission and then he ascends to heaven in, in their sight. But this is Peter's initial step of faith in, in believing the truth. And maybe at this very moment, he's re- remembering a couple of things that Jesus had said to him previously, said to all the disciples. In John eight thirty two, he said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Later on in John fourteen six, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And what Jesus is saying is that the truth saves and Jesus himself is the truth. The truth is actually embodied in who Jesus Christ is. Now, this is what we've been driving to. When the evidence points to the impossible, the implications hit, faith begins, the truth saves, and your life is forever changed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this room is actually filled with so many people whose lives have been radically transformed by that very truth that Christ was raised from the dead. The first and most obvious benefit of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ is that you have the forgiveness of sins. That what Christ did on the cross in giving his life and shedding his blood, that was the penalty a righteous man gave his life in place of unrighteous men and women. And he cleared the deck for us. All of our past sins, all of our future sins, forgiven and covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, so that we now have the hope of eternity, the promise of heaven beyond this life. That's awesome all on its own, but also the promise of an abundant life right now. Often not in the way we think about it, but the abundant life is is a joy that's so deep-seated that it's not contingent on the circumstances of my life. That I have a hope that transcends this life. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not the kind of hope that this world gives us. But it's a genuine, eternal hope in Christ. That we have peace with God. We've been reconciled with Him. And we can have peace with our uh, fellow human beings. Because of Christ. 
And we have the love of God flooding into our life, unconditional and free. And every time that this world disappoints us, amen, every time that this world disappoints us, we have his love flooding into our lives. He puts his own name on us. The abundant life is that he calls us his sons and his daughters. He gives us a purpose in this life so we don't have to go around wondering what this life is about. And again, he sets our eternal destiny. I know where I'm going. And all of that is the package deal that comes with believing the resurrection and surrendering our life to Jesus Christ. We get the abundant life now and eternal life forever. forever. Lee Strobel said this, having said all of that, I did not become a Christian because God promised I'd have an even happier life than I had as an atheist. We have to think beyond just what we're going to get here and now. Rather, I became a Christian because the evidence was so compelling that Jesus really is the one and only Son of God who proved his divinity by rising from the dead. In other words, salvation is not about what I'm going to get out of it. I don't respond to God because he met my need. I respond to God because of who he is and what he did. And when he responds to my need, that's the bonus that comes after it. Are we convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That's how we all believe. He proves his divinity to us. He proves to us who he is by rising from the dead and then giving us that very same resurrection life. Now listen, I've, I've been praying. I've been praying and many others have been praying for everyone who is going to attend one of these three services today. And we've been praying that God would do a powerful work in this place in every single person who comes. And so um, as you leave today, we want the work to continue. And as you leave today, we're handing out copies of The Case for Easter, Lee Strobel's book. And, um, and I would just encourage you, if you are not a believer, I want you to take one of these, and I, I would like you to read it. And if you're not a believer and not convinced about the resurrection, then this really should not be a threat to you in any way. If you read it and you're not convinced, no harm, no foul. If you read it and you think it's not true, it's just like reading the news. You read the news, you're not always sure it's true. So if you read it and it's nothing to you, maybe you learned a little bit, but you dismiss it, that's fine. I think that anybody here could do that and not feel threatened by that. But maybe you would read it and it would answer some questions and perhaps it will fill in some of the blanks even uh, where we have talked about uh, this today. And then if you're a believer, take one again, one per household, take one of these and, um, and read this. If you're already a believer, read this because I know this is going to strengthen your faith. This is going to increase your knowledge of who Christ is and all that he's done for you. And um, that can't help but be a good thing for all of us. So let me pray for us. And uh, then we're going to sing uh, to close off our time together. Father, I am, on behalf of everybody in this room who loves you and who believes in the resurrection, Father, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for the incredible love that you have for us. The word tells us that you loved us so much that you sent your one 
and only Son. That whoever would believe in Him not perish, not die, but have everlasting life. So God, I pray um, for those in the room who are believers that today, having spoken again of the resurrection and looked at your word, God, that we would all be built up and strengthened today. That we're going away from this place encouraged. Father, you're so good to us. Saving us. Showering us with joy and hope and peace. Giving us a name. Welcoming us into your family. So thank you. Strengthen us by your Holy Spirit. And then, God, I pray for those in the room who maybe have not yet made that decision. God, that's a work that only you can do. It's impossible for us to save ourselves. And so, God, I pray that in this moment, you would be convincing people of your truth and you would be convicting them about the implications and the response that they need to make in this moment. We leave that with you, Lord. That's, that's something between the individual and you right now. So, Father, please, move in every person's heart and mind right now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.